Welcome to the Cosmosphere Podcast. Each month we dive into space history and talk about the work that the museum does with artifact restoration, as well as education and outreach programs that are available at the Cosmosphere. I'm your host, John Mulnix. You can catch me here on this podcast and my daily podcast, The Space Shot. There's new episodes of the Cosmosphere podcast available the first Wednesday of every month, so make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes. While you're at it, do us a huge favor and leave a review in iTunes or Google Play Music. Your reviews help more people find out about the show, which helps even more people find out about the incredible work that's done at the Cosmosphere. This month I spoke with Jim Remar about Apollo 8 and 17, and also some of the artifacts that are related to those missions that are housed at the museum. We also talked about Spaceworks and the restoration of the F-1 engines from the massive first stage of the Saturn V rocket that were recovered by Bezos Expeditions. I've got some audio from my visit to that facility. My dad even tagged along during that trip, and we both had a blast. Audio from that trip will be out next month due to the time constraints for this episode. Today's show is a bit longer, so let's dive right in. Today I'm talking with Jim Remar. We're going to be going over Apollo 8 and Apollo 17. Welcome back to the podcast, Jim. Thank you. My pleasure. It's good to have you back. It's the, You're the first repeat guest, so oh, that's kind of cool. I'm excited and honored. <laughs> so we're going to start out Apollo 8, the first mission around the moon. Talk to us a little bit about the history of that mission. Sure. Uh, Apollo 8 is is probably one of my favorite, if, if not my favorite mission. Um, Unfortunately, it gets lost in the in the luster uh, of Apollo 11. Yeah. Um, but the first time that human left the gravitational pull of Earth and, and went to another planet when they went around the moon. Um, and so for me, that was an incredible mission because up to that point, we had only experienced Leo. Yeah. And not knowing what was going to happen and even if we could get to the moon and, and back um, was a pretty awesome undertaking and the fact that they did so and, and did it successfully uh, was incredible and, and it obviously uh, was a precursor and, and paved the way for uh, the momentum or the monumental undertaking of Apollo 11. Well, I mean, talking about precursors, Apollo 8 wouldn't have happened had it not been for Mercury and Gemini. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Apollo 8 um, obviously owes its execution and, and success to the, the Mercury and, and Gemini programs. Yeah. Um, Mercury really paved the way um, for humans to, to begin exploration when they uh, determined that humans could work in LEO undertake uh, uh, different types of testing and stresses and then Gemini was was really what paved the way for the lunar missions without Gemini there would have been no Apollo 11 or yeah. Apollo 8 for that matter and speaking of Gemini if you're if you're here at the Cosmosphere there's Gemini 10 Gemini, yes okay. Gemini 10 all right yep. so you've got to see that that's one of my favorite ones to look at when I'm here 
last time we talked, you talked about how the White Room's your favorite mm-hmm. space artifact. Was that one used for we're, Apollo? We're not 8? sure. Okay. So there were there were three <laughs> White Rooms. Okay. And unfortunately, there is nothing that indicates which missions came through the respective White Rooms. So, Interesting. Uh, unfortunately, there's no paper trail that said, okay, missions A, B, and C came through this White Room. Uh, so we, we like to joke that, you know, all the historic missions, Apollo 8, <laughs> Apollo 11, Apollo 13, all, all came through ours. But, uh, unfortunately, we, we aren't for sure which ones. I think that's okay. You can, you can cherry-pick yeah, the good absolutely. missions. <laughs> oh, my God, look at that picture over there. One of the things for the Apollo 8 mission was the Earthrise photo. Mm-hmm. And downstairs, there's a lot of, there's a collection of right, cameras right. and film canisters. Talk to me about like the importance of those artifacts. Sure. Well, without the photography of the Apollo missions, those of us who remain on Earth in, in generations to come would not have been able to fully grasp or understand what took place. Uh, the images that the astronauts captured are some of the most historic, some of the most beautiful known to man. And so it's an opportunity for us to be able to A, showcase the hardware that was used. Because what people don't realize is the astronauts had to become almost experts in photography, understanding the camera. For the still imagery, they were using the Hasselblad, which is a very sophisticated, high-end camera. Um, they were utilizing a number of different lenses and configurations, apertures. So not only did the astronauts have to understand the engineering behind the spacecraft, but they had to understand the engineering and, and how the camera functioned. And, and that allowed them to take beautiful images. And fortunately, the Cosmosphere houses the, the world's largest collection of, of photographic hardware. We have over a thousand pieces in our collection, many of them flown. 
it is believed that we have the camera that took Earthrise, though we're not quite sure that that is accurate. Um, the camera in our collection that allegedly took Earthrise is a silver configuration of Hasselblad, um, which is actually the, the lunar configuration. And so what we don't know is whether Apollo 8 was testing the lunar camera in uh, lunar orbit, but nonetheless, uh, the, the camera collection that we have and, and the visitor is able to see is, is second to none. The thing with the cameras, it was different types of film, too. It was Absolutely. like the ectochrome. There was different types. Like, everybody knows, like, the Kodachrome. Right. That's, like, kind of the... When you think about retro photographs, it's Kodachrome. Right. And that was a variant of Kodachrome. Did Kodak make it specifically for NASA? That That is correct. Okay. And it was a, a larger format, so it was 70-millimeter film. Um, as opposed to probably what most people recognize as yeah. the 35-millimeter. Uh, Big difference in image quality. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Even if that camera, you know, didn't take Earthrise, that's still pretty incredible to it think is. about. It uh, is. You know, some of the cameras in our collection um, include flown on the Apollo 17 mission, Apollo 13 mission. In fact, we have one of the only cameras that was brought back from the lunar surface. Uh, we have a camera that flew to the lunar surface, was used on the lunar surface, and then returned by Alan Shepard on the Apollo 14 mission. Wow. Um, so one of, I think, only three cameras came back from, from the respective Apollo missions, because typically what they would do is take the, the film magazine and return those, but to decrease weight in the lunar module, they would leave the, the camera body yeah. and the lenses on the surface of the moon. Better to take back moon rocks. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have that. So we'll be we'll be talking about Apollo 17 here in just a few minutes. Is there anything else that you you know your favorite part of Apollo 8? There there are three things that that resonate with me. Um, one is is the TLI maneuver. Um, that was the first time uh, that they had done the the translunar insertion. Um, what really makes that special is we have the the checklist uh, in our collection um, that that was used in the command module for that maneuver. The other two things, one, obviously, the Earthrise. Regardless of, of who you believe in, if you, if you believe in a, in a higher being, seeing that picture, that yeah. image, has to allow you to know that, that whatever that higher being you believe in is, exists. Yeah. Um, the beauty and the majesty of that picture is, is awe-inspiring. The other, uh, and again, um, regardless of, of what your denomination or faith is, the reading from the book of Genesis during that, that holiday period, that was something that I think, regardless of, of your beliefs, you can appreciate. And, and was very emotional uh, yeah. for, for not only the astronauts, but, but for those uh, listening back on Earth. Those, those three things to me really inspire me as, as it relates to that mission. And again, unfortunately, it, it gets overshadowed by the, the subsequent Apollo 10 and, and Apollo 11. But um, just, to, just to think about what those three astronauts felt, the crew felt, as they began their voyage to the moon and, and not knowing what was going to happen, given that this was the first time. Um, the, the emotions had to have been running the gamut. Yeah. Um, but then to, to have them return safely back to Earth, um, you know, setting the stage for what ultimately was, was mankind's greatest achievement. We are now approaching the 
So today we went to the Spaceworks facility where we saw the place that the F-1 engines from the Apollo program were restored. Jim, why did Bezos' expeditions come to the Cosmosphere? That's, that's a great question. We had the, the good fortune of Bezos' expeditions contracting with the Cosmosphere to do the, the original conservation of, of the F-1 engines. And there were three reasons why we were chosen. The first and foremost was, was because of our expertise, our ability to do a project of this nature, which was proven through our restoration of Liberty Bell 7. That really allowed the recovery team to know that, that they were choosing a, an entity that had done this before. They knew that we had a successful track record. The other is because of, of who we are, A, a museum, that uh, exhibits and educates about the history of space exploration and B, because of our, our education value. They knew that we were going to uh, utilize this opportunity as a way to educate the public and to teach the public about not only the, the expedition, the recovery, and the, and the conservation, but the history. So those three things really factored into uh, Bezos Expeditions choosing us uh, to do the uh, conservation work. Talk about the restoration process. Like, what was that like? How sure. long were they out there looking for the pieces? So the, if, if you think of the, the project in three phases, the first phase was the discovery. So they really had to go to where they thought the debris field was and using side scan sonar sweep the debris field, the area of the debris field, and then hope that they would get some hits that they could then study the, the radar, the frequency, and determine whether what they were seeing was indeed an, an F1 engine. So that, that was the first step. 
Then the second step was the recovery itself. The discovery was done in 2012, and then in March of 2013, the expedition set out to do the recovery side. They were out at sea for just under a month, just about four weeks, and they had studied the data and utilizing the trajectory, the azimuth, um, taking into account factor of error, the NASA charted impact points. They thought they knew where the area was. What's, what's really amazing is that no one ever saw the impact. So there, there literally was, was no eyeballs on impact really? sites. So they were, they were pretty certain that where they were looking was indeed the impact. The sole objective was to recover something from Apollo 11. But in this specific area, you had six other missions yeah. that the S-1C, the first stage, splashed down in this area. So they were, they were mining a huge area, huge debris field. And the first time that they ever saw the engines was when they dropped the ROV for the first time. The crew itself did not know what to expect. I mean, no one knew whether these were going to be intact, whether they were going to be in shreds, what they were going to find when they when they got down. So when they when they dropped for the first time, and, and this is the the area they're working in. Not only was large uh, in in a square mile sense, but it was also incredibly deep. So you're talking about a ship that is up three miles from the surface and an ROV that is working beneath three miles. And the first time they dropped in, they, they saw components and parts, and they knew that the, the engines had, had broken apart. Um, it's, it's theorized that, that the, the thrust plate, the main plate that the engines were attached to in the S1C, probably remained untacked until they hit the surface. Um, the S1C is 110 feet tall, um, 30 foot in diameter, but was mostly aluminum, so it probably broke up as, as it began its descent. Um, and, and we're talking a descent from about 42 miles. High, yeah. Um, the, the thrust plate in the five engines probably remained intact until they hit the, the water, the surface of the ocean. And they probably impacted going you know, somewhere between 400 and 600 miles an hour. Um, and, and when you're hitting that fast from yeah. that altitude, that's like hitting concrete. So they, they hit, they deaccelerated, and then as the, the air became lighter, as oxygen dissipated, the further they went, then they reaccelerated. Uh, so again, they, they didn't know what they were going to get. They quickly realized that many of these components were embedded three to five feet in the seafloor. Um, so they were going to have to dredge them out, um, maneuver the, the two ROVs, uh, and then pull these up so they they dropped and then heavy seas set in so they they were riding out the storm for for about four or five days um, and then had a a two to three week period where they were working around the clock um, through the night uh, recovering the artifacts so they what they would do is this this ship was state-of-the-art to combat the fact that you know you had the ship moving in different directions on the surface and then the ROV down the the ship was equipped with thrusters that allowed it um, to hold a position even in in heavier seas and and winds 
it also had a winch that mechanically let out and then retracted so the ROVs um, were not bobbing, bobbing up and up down, and down. As, <laughs> as the ship went up and down. So they dropped two ROVs. Um, the two would work um, in tandem, uh, providing obviously the light as well as the, the camera, but then these were the tools, the, the workers on the seafloor. So you had two operators on the ship who were almost like they were playing a video game, manipulating these robots and the arms and the tools uh, to dredge and then shackle, hook, hook the engine components up. And then the hoist would drop a, a huge recovery basket that basically was about the size of this room. And they would put, wow. the, they would put the components in the basket because it took about an hour and 45 minutes to get down to the bottom and then it took about another hour and a half to get up so once you were down you weren't you weren't going to go back up so um, they would literally drag all this around pick wow. the components and then put them into the baskets um, so after uh, you know a period of, of about a month um, being at sea uh, they were able to recover um, I believe it was 18 prime components so they recovered five thrust chambers uh, which for all practicality, is the engine. Um, it's, that's where the combustion started. Uh, they recovered five thrust chambers, uh, three liquid oxygen, oxygen domes with injector plates. Uh, they recovered two turbo pumps, two uh, heat exchangers, uh, and then uh, one nozzle section. So about 25,000 pounds. Wow. Uh, so when they, they finished the recovery process, they still at that point didn't know whether they had an engine from Apollo 11 or not. They brought the components um, back uh, to Canaveral, um, where the Cosmosphere oversaw the offloading. And then the artifacts were transported from Canaveral, where it was about 78 degrees on the day they returned, uh, to Hutchinson, where the night before they arrived at our facility we got about six to eight inches of snow <laughs> and we're offloading in 32 degree temperatures so oh my quite, quite a swing yeah um, and then once here we began the the process of conservation and that project uh, took us two and a half years wow so the restoration process that's i mean that's pretty involved it is uh, because the, those engines had spent you know almost a half century at the bottom right. of the seafloor right. and the you know the, between the salt water and the pressures what does that do to artifacts like you know the, the the engines or the Liberty Bell Seven, it, it sure doesn't do them any favors. That's for sure. <laughs> it really depends on the material, um, and, and and let me explain. So, for instance, uh, uh, Liberty Bell Seven, the exterior of that spacecraft is is titanium, Renee Forty Seven. I think it's, it's basically a nickel alloy incredibly robust materials but on the inside um, you're dealing more with aluminums and, and weaker materials and so at that depth you're you're combating three things you're combating pressure you're you're combating salt and then you are combating electrolytic activity um, so there's a lot of electric energy um, at those depths and that electrolytic activity begins attacking um, the material so for instance Liberty Bell 7 Initially, um, the, the, the heat shield, which was made of beryllium, was intact. And so that electrolytic activity attacked the, the beryllium heat shield, and, and that was really the, the sacrificial lamb, if you will. So huh. Think of a big battery. That was the, the anode. So once the, the beryllium heat shield um, was basically disintegrated, that moved interior to inside the, the capsule and began attacking the instrument panel. In the case of the F1, things that were aluminum, 
uh, stainless steel, uh, copper, that salt and electrolytic activity did severe corrosion and damage. Fortunately, the vast majority of that engine is, is made up of um, incredible material called Inconel, and that is a super alloy, uh, one of the strongest materials known to man, and, and really withstood um, the, the corrosive issues at that depth. The other factor was, there's, uh, it, it, as it relates specifically to the F1s, um, depending on where they were found, there were heavy deposits of calcium. So the calcium, in, especially in, in the, uh, the clay of the seafloor, um, became embedded in those artifacts and began attacking uh, the artifacts as well. And so you could, you could literally see if a, if a thrust chamber had been lying on its side or you know, embedded to, to a degree in, in the seafloor, you could see the corrosion line. Um, where the, the artifact was in the seafloor, you could see the, the, the corrosive nature of, of the calcium deposits uh, in the seafloor. Wow. That's, I, who would, you know, calcium, I guess, I've never really thought that it yeah. could be damaging to something. You know, we're always told, get your calcium, it's good for your bones. <laughs> Not good for spacecraft, good to know. So Spaceworks doesn't just restore artifacts, it, you know, preserves the legacy and the mm-hmm. history of the space race. Why is that so important? Well, early on, uh, the Cosmosphere realized that, that there's only a finite number of, of spacecraft or space artifacts available. Um, and while those artifacts are well-placed in museums uh, throughout the country and even throughout the world, unfortunately not everybody's going to be able to, to see it and appreciate it. Um, and it, it's important for us to be able to produce something that is historically accurate, uh, high fidelity, so the public can understand what got us to the moon, how we explored space, to hopefully spark or ignite a, a, an interest. Um, you know, if somebody is, is watching um, the movie Apollo 13 and is inspired because of what was accomplished in bringing that crew back uh, safely, um, then, then in part we, we've done our job. And so we always want to ensure that we're doing whatever it is, whether it's, it's through our education programs, our exhibits here, or fabricating replicas, doing something um, to preserve the history, to be able to tell the story, but inspire that next generation. So this is, this is SpaceWorks. Um, we, we've got two two um, facilities. This is our, our 6,000 square foot high bay facility where the F1 engines um, were restored. Okay. And then the um, other building I'll take in uh, is, is the main shop. Okay. Um, so what the guys are presently doing is they are getting this area prepped um, for the uh, restoration of the original mission control consoles from awesome. uh, uh, NASA Johnson mm-hmm. Space Center. So Very cool. We'll bring all the consoles. This is Jack Graber. Originally, I was planning on including all of the audio from my trip to Spaceworks in this episode, but I will be sharing that next month instead. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode as it comes out on the first Wednesday of every month. 
Now, let's catch up on some news at the Cosmosphere. Today I'm talking with Carla Stanfield at the Cosmosphere about some news and events coming up here in December. Carla, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. So what do we've got going on in December? Well, a couple of different things centered on the season. So the first is um, a members event that we did for the first time last year, and this will be the second um annual event I suppose we can call it but it's called science of the season it's where we sort of combine the education the science education with entertainment so we have a presentation with Brad Neust over the science of light and so you'll understand how we see light how our brains understand light how light travels why we see different spectrums and how we see them Um, and then we'll move into a present or excuse me a performance from a musician named trevor stewart who plays a very unique instrument called the chapman stick it's a for lack of better term, a bodiless guitar. It's a stringed instrument, um, and it's able to produce several sounds at one time. Um, So in conjunction with that, he plays a viola, and he had a couple of other instruments last year. He sort of loops them. It's a very immersive experience. You're enlightened mentally through the education, and then being able to listen to such unique music Um, It's just a very interesting, different event that we have put on and and are looking forward to this year's. That's on the 3rd. It's a Sunday. Okay. And then we have, throughout the entirety of kind of the holiday season, um, a couple of things happening. From November 26th through December 24th in our museum store, Mm -hmm. we will be um, offering a free tote bag with every purchase of $25. So we want to remind you that if you have any spacey friends or NASA centered folks, or just people that are interested in science and the stars, we have great gifts for those people in our museum store. Um, They can also go online and check out our offerings through our website as well. And again, every $25, they'll get a tote bag for that. And then the last thing that I really wanted to mention was our showing of Polar Express. It's been okay. kind of a holiday favorite among families here in Hutch for sure. We offer that movie starting on the 15th through the 31st, excuse me, excluding a couple of days right there, Christmas Eve and okay. Christmas Day. You can see the exact schedule online. But it does look fantastic in our dome, and yeah. it is a it's a holiday favorite so. for sure. And the dome theater is pretty cool. I've I've been there a few times before, and I've never seen a holiday movie on it, so I might have to try to come out for that. I have to say, cartoons honestly look really good in there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always a fan of cartoons, so I'll have to I'll have to catch that. Well, thank you for joining us today. Um, I appreciate you coming back on. Absolutely, thank you.
world, two pictures, one of the North America and one of South America. The other covers the other half of the world, including Africa, Asia, Europe, Australia. Covers the North Pole and the South Pole. In between these two hemispheres, we have a pictorial view of the moon. A pictorial view of where all the Apollo landings have been made. So that when this plaque is seen again by others who come, they will know where it all started. The words are here man completed his first exploration of the moon. December 17 we you know we started today's episode off with a discussion of the first mission around the moon so i think it's fitting that we're ending with the last apollo mission to the moon um, december is kind of a big month for it space is, history absolutely so it's really a you know, great opportunity to sit down and talk i want to talk about the legacy of the apollo program and also you know future flights sure. but first apollo 17 talk to me about it Apollo 17 is is really a, a bittersweet mission. It's it's a, a historic mission, obviously, um, in that two astronauts explored the surface of the moon. They they went further and, and uh, did more exploration than previous missions. But it but it's absolutely bittersweet because it's the last time that any human has touched foot on the surface of the moon. I, I guarantee you that. The astronauts, you know, Gene Cernan and, and Jack Schmidt, thought that there would be another mission to the lunar surface long before we have even started to talk about going back to the moon. The fact that we're sitting here in 2017, and it was 1972, December 1972, when that that mission left the surface, um, is is really a shame. So on one hand, while that mission is is very historic and and one that um, I look at fondly, it's it's one that as a country um, we need to realize that too much time has passed in between, and and it's it's time for this country to start moving forward again uh, and to doing what we do and that's explore and that's to chart new territory try new things and, and unfortunately we've we've lost that we've lost that inspiration and i i hope as you know we come up on the anniversary of that mission we can all pause for a moment take a step back and and recognize what was accomplished during um, the apollo program but also understand that um, it's time for this country to to start moving forward again you know, it's one of the things that we'll talk about here a little bit at the close, but the National Space Council 
you know, giving us the news that the moon is going to be a destination right. here again soon, just as kind of a stepping stone. So hopefully you know what? that that's will materialize. The, that's the third time they've had yeah. that objective yeah. in, what, the last 20 years, yeah. I think. You know, both both Bushes uh, had that as an objective, and, and now it's an objective again. I'm hopeful that at some point we stop giving lip, providing lip service to this and actually do it. It's important for a couple of reasons. One, it's important because it begins to expand our exploration back back to where we were in, in 1972, but it also sets us on a path um, for, for far greater things, far greater exploration um, than, than we've ever considered or contemplated. Well, you know, in Apollo 17, that was really the culmination of all of the flights because it was absolutely. the first time a geologist yeah, flew in ab- space. Absolutely. So, you know, pushing the boundaries, that was something that Apollo 17 did. What What do you think the, you know, the geological role, you know, exploring the lunar geography, why was that important? You know, what did they end up doing, you know, cramming that in at the last minute, basically? Sure. Well, I, I think it, it served two purposes. It, A, allowed science to progress. It, it allowed a geologist to do what they do, and that's, that's study formations and, and rocks and the topography and um, analyze and, and that was an important opportunity because it allowed humans to, to study the surface of, of another planet, if you will, and, and to collect specimens and data um, that otherwise would have been impossible. And it, it helped scientists to determine the age of the Earth and how the Earth was created, what the moon was comprised of. But the other reason it was important was it was the first time that a non-aviator or a pilot, test pilot, played a significant role in the mission. And Harrison Schmidt, being a scientist and a, and a, a PhD and not a test pilot or, or an aviator, um, was important in that it, it signified a, a shift in mindset and mentality. I think it was at that point that, that NASA began to place more emphasis on the the science and the discovery and not that you know the the other wasn't important but for for NASA to truly achieve its objectives was going to require a new breed of of astronauts um, that were able to to take the the studies and the experiments to a new level well, that's something that you know whatever the legacy of the shuttle program is the amount of scientists that flew on those missions is pretty staggering. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think it, um, it, the shuttle was was incredibly important from that perspective, and Apollo seventeen was was that first step that led to um, all the science and the discoveries and the testing, the incredibly important things that were accomplished um, during the shuttle program. One other thing, you know, earlier today when I was just milling around downstairs, there are some artifacts from Apollo 17 just even on display before you go into the Hall of Space. Um, And those flew to the moon. Right. So we're, again, Cosmosphere is fortunate to have some pretty significant artifacts, including some Apollo 17 artifacts. We have an exhibit in our rotunda that that displays uh, some of the artifacts from that mission. We have 
photographic hardware from the mission. Uh, the docking uh, target from that mission is on display. And then when you go down into the Hall of Space, we have two fenders from the Apollo 17 lunar rover on display, and, and that has a unique story into itself. The One of the fenders was damaged, creating the LRV inoperable until they utilized some duct tape and clamps and, and uh, maps to create the fix. And so along with those fenders, we also have the Albine painting, Fender Loving Care, um, depicting that that uh, fix. And so those, those are incredible artifacts and, and to know that uh, some of these were used on the surface of the moon and then brought back is inspiring. No matter how far out we go, we're always going to have a use for duct tape. Absolutely. <laughs> you you, you, you got to carry duct tape with you. It was proven on numerous missions in the space program, the importance of duct tape. Well, you know, when we talk about Apollo 13, well, I'm sure we'll have to mention duct tape for Absolutely. that. So I'm looking forward to that. So what are your thoughts on SpaceX announcing a circumlunar flight? And then more recently, we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, the announcement the for the third time essentially yeah, in the last right. decade you know decade and a half that the US is going to be returning to sure. the moon what are what are your thoughts well, on well i'm 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 excited by spacex's announcement in my opinion spacex and in blue origin uh, are really going to be the the forerunners as it relates to space exploration um, you also have the Bigelow Aerospace and, and Virgin Galactic and Sierra Nevadas, um, they'll be players as well, but um, SpaceX and, and Blue Origin have the, the capital uh, to back it up and to do it. And I think I think the private sector is, is going to lead the way. And so for them for them to announce it to me is is incredibly exciting. They're not held back by the bureaucratic red tape. Um, they they can cut through that and if if you know a SpaceX or a Blue Origin announces are going to do something, you can you can rest assured that it, that it's going to happen. As it relates to to our announcement, um, cautiously optimistic, I, I suppose is what I would say. Again, you know we we have seen these announcements, um, we've we've heard the the rhetoric. Unfortunately, I'll take kind of a cynical pessimistic point of view and I'll believe it when I see it exactly um, I'm, I'm hopeful um, that it will happen but I'm not going to hold my breath I'm fairly certain that SpaceX of Blue Origin will accomplish that feat long before NASA and, and the government space program does something else going along with the announcement that we're you mm -hmm. know the National Space Council wanting to go back to the moon um, Representative Bridenstein mm -hmm. you know his first part of his confirmation hearing was basically last week at the time of right. recording this and if you know the contentious nature of that confirmation hearing is any indicator of what we're looking at going forward you know, could end up being SpaceX and Blue Origin beating the US back absolutely so. I, I just I, I just think there there are too many political games being played and the the appetite to put the money towards uh, an endeavor of getting back to the moon is is not what it once was and mm -hmm. I again I think it's going to take a blue origin or a SpaceX to do it and before a our government and B our you know the, the, the public at large gets excited about it again fortunately both companies have have the capital and the ability and, and the, the wherewithal to, to make it happen um, but until 
they do and excuse my language kick you know our government in the butt um, I'm skeptical obviously reusability is going to play a critical mm -hmm. role um, in returning to the moon and going beyond to you know Mars and, and elsewhere in the solar system December is also the anniversary of SpaceX landing an orbital class booster mm -hmm. for the first time back in 2015 and then also recovering a Dragon capsule for the first time back in 2010. What are your thoughts on those developments and where you see the industry moving? Those are all incredibly positive things because it decreases the cost um, significantly. I mean, one of the reasons why the shuttle is no longer flying is because of the significant cost associated with flying the, the orbiter. The way that the SpaceX and the Blue Origins have been able to go about it is, is they've engineered hardware that is efficient, um, effective, but also is not so astronomical in its, its price tag mm -hmm. that it, it's it, you know, become ultimately cost prohibitive. So I think these things are incredibly positive and will only allow those companies to continue to improve and advance um, at a much quicker pace and, and at a much cheaper price tag. What do you think the legacy of Apollo will be? 50 years from now I'm hoping that the legacy is is that was the first step that that was taken um, as humans explore the universe and beyond I hope people 50 years from now are able to look back on that and say that was a tremendous period of time when amazing accomplishments were achieved and that it was done with the entire country and world watching and hoping and praying and I'm hopeful that we can get back to that point where collectively we as humans cooperate in an endeavor um, that allows us to finish what Apollo started not finish but take up the torch that Apollo had and, and continue to move forward Jim, thanks for coming Absolutely. on the show. Absolutely, my pleasure. Appreciate it. Good old Mother Earth is right back in the center. Bob, while we've got a quiet moment here, as I go to deploy that AP charge, I'd just like to, to any part of Apollo 17 or, or any part of Apollo, that has been a success so far. It's probably, for the most part, due to the thousands of people in the aerospace industry who have given a great deal besides dedication and besides effort and besides professionalism to make it all a reality. And I would just like to thank them because what we've done here and what has been done in the past as a matter of fact, what has been done for 200 years, you've got to contribute to the spirit of the group of people who form the aerospace industry. And I, God bless you, and thank you. Roger, Dean, and uh, we thank you guys. Now, we're just two little, two little sets of twinkle toes here. There's a, a lot that goes to getting this 
drugs are running out here that we don't have much to do with. Yeah, I guess there might be someone else that has something to do with it, too. And I've been reading his sign, maybe not from him directly, but his in spirit as we run up and down that ladder. And that's Godspeed, the crew of Apollo 17. And if he's listening, I'd like to thank him, too. Thank you all for listening to the Cosmosphere podcast. I hope you'll subscribe to the show so you catch new episodes the first Wednesday of every month. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find out about the podcast and the incredible work that's done here in Hutchinson. Next month, triumph and tragedy. For the Cosmosphere, I'm John Molnix.